Thank you, Joe Levitt. Uh, if you haven't already turned to that passage, it's a very interesting one, isn't it? Go ahead and look at it. And uh, we're going to dive in this morning pretty, pretty fast. There's a lot to cover in this text. And I, listen, I, I won't lie to you. This is one of the most difficult passages that we've encountered so far in Mark's gospel. I and mean, what's going on with this fig tree? I mean, this is not a good look for Jesus, you know, initially when you first look at it. And then all the stuff at the end about uh, mountains moving and faith and these things and the temple. How does it all fit together? Does it even all fit together? And the biggest question is, does it even apply to us? I mean, is there anything in here that we can learn from and gain from? Um, here's what I've come to sort of realize as I dug into this passage, honestly, for the very first time. I'd really studied this in depth the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think this is a critical passage in the way that Mark is building the story of the gospel. And I'll explain to you why. In fact, I think um, this is not too strong a statement. This passage shows the difference between spiritual death, which is what you have in this tree, and spiritual life, which is what Jesus is talking about at the end through faith. And I want to unpack that for you. I think it's, it's no less significant than that. And here's how I think it applies to us. I'll go ahead and hint at this now, and then we'll unpack it later when we get to application. Um, Jody and, and I and our three daughters, we've lived in this area now um, going on three years. In, in a couple of months, it'll be three years. Love it. I mean, what is, what is there not to love about Franklin, Tennessee? It's a fantastic place. But I'll tell you something that I've learned, and this is not uncommon for other towns in the Bible Belt, is we have a ton of Christians, at least a ton of people that come, go to church, you know, profess the Christian faith. But what I've learned when you start talking to people, and this is, this is true with my neighbors, this is true with people we meet at PTA meetings, etc. It's also true with people right here in this body, is a lot of us are here because it's kind of the thing to do. You know, it's especially if you have kids, and this is the big thing around this area, is most people that live here could live other places in the country. They choose to live here because of the quality of life. And part of the quality of life is, you know, you have the four-bedroom house, and you have the dog, and you go to church. That's part of the deal. And I meet a number of people, and maybe they're back in church for the first time in a while as adults, and I say, well, it's fantastic. Tell me why you're back. And they'll say something along the lines of, well, we want our kids to be involved that's good. Like, that's great. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm glad that's brought you back. But many times it sort of stops right there. And so I was thinking about this passage and I thought, well, if this really is showing us the difference between spiritual death and spiritual life, my hope for you is spiritual life. My hope for you is that you don't just come on Sunday to sort of fulfill a routine or, you know, for the good of your kids or because it's the thing to do or, or, or I'm going to go a little bit deeper. I'm going to push a little harder because I care about you. My hope is not that you just come here just for some exchange, some consumer exchange where, you know, you come here and what you get is, is sort of a, a, a consumer experiences of, of religious goods and services. You know what I mean by this? Like, we really like the music. We really like the teaching. You know, we walk out of here after an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15 minutes, depending on who's preaching, right? <laughs> and you're like, that was great. I really enjoyed that. You know, I got my fill of Jesus for the day or fill of Jesus for the week. Here's what I would desire for you as one of your pastors, that you would, over time, long to have a vibrancy in your walk with God. That your spirituality would not just be sort of a check-the-box Sunday morning thing, but it would, would, would come to sort of flow out of you in joy. And that you would be transformed over time to live into the calling for which you were made, which has surely got to be a lot more than just sort of a, a cultural Christian who comes on Sunday mornings and then just kind of checks the boxes throughout the week. So maybe this morning the best thing I could do as someone who cares for you is to ask this question, why are you here? 
What are you hoping for from this morning, from your church attendance, from your involvement at fellowship, however deep or shallow that, that may be? Do you actually want to have a sort of a vibrant, alive relationship with God and live into the purpose for which you're made? Or do you want to honestly, and you know, you don't have to say this out loud, but are you really coming to consume some religious goods and services that will meet your needs and make your life a little better? I hope you don't hear condemnation in that question. This is a good question for me. It's a good question for all of us. Why are we here? Now, why do I go there with this text? I think this passage this morning addresses these very things. It's going to outline for us, hey, there is a path that looks really good, but it's not fruitful. And then there's another path where spiritual life and fullness and vitality is found. Now, to really get there, you have to understand Mark's number one um, style that we've seen all throughout the gospel. This is his trademark. It's what we call inclusio. Or to give another term you may be more familiar with, it's the sandwich structure. That if you've been around our series, we've talked about this a lot of times. If you're new, let me explain it. In fact, we got, we've got a couple of visual images for you about this. So let's throw up the sandwich structure. Okay, here it is. Now, you know, first service, hopefully y'all aren't too, too hungry. Second service, right, we're going to have some people get up and leave in the middle because like, man, that's drawing me out. That BLT, right, that looks pretty good. Now, what this basically means is what Mark often does is he has a theme he introduces at the beginning of a passage and at the end of the passage. And in the middle, there's something sandwiched in between. And he always wants to use the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread to get your attention on the center. So here's our passage. The cursing of the fig tree is the top bread. The bottom bread is the lesson of the fig tree. What's in the middle? Jesus in the temple. Okay, so go ahead and go to the next slide. Put another way, and this is sort of our outline for today's message. Fruitless tree at the top, fruitless temple in the middle, fruitful faith on the bottom. That's the outline of our passage. If you don't get this big structure, you're going to miss the whole application. So we start with that this morning. So let's jump in. This is where we're going to go. Three parts to the message. We'll start with fruitless tree, verses 12 through 14. Now, I'm not going to reread the whole thing. Joe did a great job of that, but I want to reread some of it. So let me reread these first three verses, 12 through 14. On the next day. Now, the next day after what? The next day after the triumphal entry. So Jesus has come into Jerusalem for what purpose? In order to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of man and then be raised up. He's come in on Sunday. So the next day would be Monday morning. When they had left Bethany, Bethany was kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, if you think about it that way. They're heading back toward Jerusalem. He became hungry. Verse 13, seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, this is not a good optic for Jesus right? This doesn't actually look that good. In fact, I'd say this way, if you just take this passage by itself, apart from the context of what's about to come at the temple and the lesson at the end, here's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus was fooled by a tree and he got so mad about that. He's sort of like a petulant three-year-old. He's like, man, I'm going to zap you, tree. And if, if I can't have figs from you, no one's going to have figs from you. Now, let me ask this question. We've been in Mark for a lot of months. Does that interpretation fit any of the character you've seen of Jesus throughout this entire study? Not a bit. There's got to be more going on here. And there is. 
In fact, it was kind of funny. Joe um, was reading the scripture during the mic check, you know, this morning. And you know, Joe's a funny guy. You don't know him. He seems so serious when he's up here reading scripture. He's actually a really funny guy. And, and he said two things as he was reading the passage. He paused. And the first thing he said was, he said, you'd think Jesus would know there were going to be no figs, right? You know, he's, he's God himself. You'd think he would know. And the second thing he said near the end is he said, poor little fig tree. And I was like, yeah, that's where our minds go. So if you see it just in that, you're going to be like, what is going on here? This makes no sense. Jesus is being petty. Jesus is being petulant. Or or Jesus just doesn't really have a clue. Uh, The reality is, of course, there's more going on. Now, again, the key is our sandwich structure. If you recognize the fig tree illustrations on the top and the bottom, what you realize is really important is in the middle, which is about the temple. Another way to say it is, all the stuff about the fig tree is actually not about the fig tree. It's symbolic, pointing toward what's true about the temple. And by the way, the temple represents the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And we'll get there. But I want you just to look carefully back again at verse 14. This is what it says. He said to it, the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The last phrase is the most important phrase I've read so far. And his disciples were listening. That's a clue that this is meant to be an illustration, a teaching point for them. Now, theologians have kind of fancy language for everything, and what they call this is they call this an acted parable. In other words, you know what a parable is, you know, a story that illustrates a point. Well, when it's more than a story, when it's actually a visual illustration, there's something being acted out. We call it an acted parable. So there's a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament where, you know, typically, here's the formula. It says, the word of the Lord came to prophet so-and-so and said, go do such and such as a sign to the people. Now, a good example of this, if you're curious, just to give you one, Jeremiah chapter 13. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, take off your belt and go bury it under a rock by the river and let it sit there for a whole lot of days. And then he came to Jeremiah again after a number of days said, go dig up the belt. Jeremiah dug up the belt. And as you could imagine, it's wet, it's dirty. You know, it was totally ruined. And and so God said, I want you to, to show this belt to the people of Israel and say, oh, Israel, I had wrapped you around my waist as a beautiful adornment close to my heart. And you have desired to be apart from me. And you have become filthy. This is the idea. It's a powerful illustration. It sticks with people. They rem- remember that time Jeremiah buried his belt? Man, I remember what that meant. That's what's happening with the fig tree. That's what Jesus is doing. And you know, the only thing that's lacking is the, the sentence that says, the word of the Lord came to Jesus and said. Why is that lacking? He is the word of the Lord. <laughs> like he is the word of the Lord. So he's doing this acted parable, this illustration to teach a broader lesson. Here's the point. The fig tree represents more than a fig tree. You don't have to feel sorry for the fig tree, right? It it wasn't about that. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He's illustrating a point to the disciples. Now, what do the fig tree and the temple have in common? This is about what we're going to see, but let me just tip my hand just a minute. Notice that this fig tree looked alive from a distance. But when Jesus got up close, it didn't have anything to offer. It wasn't giving anything back. It wasn't fulfilling its purpose as a fig tree, at least in that moment in time. 
Now, let's look at the temple with that in mind. And I'm going to read the next few verses, beginning in verse 15. Then, this is immediately after he curses this tree, then they came to Jerusalem. And look what Jesus is going to do right away. He entered the temple. And immediately, I added that, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, you got to understand a couple things about the temple, and I don't want to belabor this too long, but you got to get this to understand the application that's to come. At the time that this event happened, the Jerusalem temple was literally one of the most magnificent structures in the ancient world. And, and that's absolutely no exaggeration. In fact, I want to put a picture up for you. Let's go ahead and put the picture up of the temple. Now, this is a model. If you go to Jerusalem, and I hope someday you have an opportunity to, there, there's a model that was built. It's incredible. It takes up about an acre of land, and this is the, the primary structure in the model. This represents what Jerusalem would have looked like at the time of Jesus. And here's the temple. Now, I'm going to point some things out, and for the first time ever, I'm using a laser pointer. So I will try to be careful not to blind anybody. I'm going to point it over here to, to my left, your right. Now, this is the temple structure itself inside this building, which, by the way, was probably eight or ten stories tall. Okay, this is a huge, almost like a skyscraper structure. You could see it from a long, long distance. Inside this was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was only entered by the high priest only and only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Outside the temple itself, you have this little courtyard here. This is where only Jewish men could go. The sacrifices would have happened right about here near this corner. This structure right here, this courtyard, would have been where women would have been allowed, Jewish women. This was the, the court of women. Now, all this around here, all this structure in the broad courtyard here was called the Court of Gentiles. And anyone could walk into this. You didn't have to be Jewish to be in this part of the temple. This would have been the area, all in this area here, around the temple itself, but not actually in the temple structure, where all the marketplace would have been set up, selling the doves, exchanging the money, and doing all these things. So if you came from anywhere uh, in the area, and you'd come at the Passover, this area would literally be flooded with thousands of people and hundreds of merchants. Now, you see these pillars back over here? Just to give you some scale, okay, it took three men wrapping their arms to reach all the way around a pillar, okay? That's how massive this is. So just, I know it's hard to tell from this photo, but just imagine, literally thousands of people, okay? So um, if you've been to any of the, the Franklin Main Street festivals or any of those festivals, how like crazy crowded you can hardly move down there, like that's what it would have been like. And you'd have all these booths set up and tents set up, people selling, people yelling at each other, people haggling, arguing over prices. This is the scene, the height of Passover, Jesus is entering into the, to the city that he would have come into. Now, what's the problem with this? Typically, we think the problem when we read this passage is that some of the merchants were being unfair, that there was financial extortion going on, that there was cheating, maybe in the currency exchange, or maybe they were charging too much for the dove and ripping off the poor people. There probably was some of that going on, but that's not the main thing that Jesus is upset about. 
The main thing he's upset about is all the marketplace that Jesus had set up left no space for the Gentile people to come and pray and hopefully encounter the God of the Hebrews who was the one true God. Look at it again. Look closely at verse 17. In fact, let's put 17 back on the screen. What does Jesus say? Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, the ethnos, the non-Jewish people, but you have made it into a robber's den. Also, what we realize is they were using it as a shortcut to go from one part of the city to the other. Oh, we don't need to go around the temple complex. Let's just cut through the court of Gentiles. And Jesus puts a stop to that as well. It's explicit in the text. So, the court of Gentiles is where non-Jewish people, men and women, were supposed to pray and learn about the true God. It had been turned into a marketplace and a thoroughfare. And this is a serious problem. A couple of background reasons why this is such a big deal, and then this will all start to make sense. Number one, do you remember Israel's original calling when God called Abram? Genesis 12, 3, God says, I will make you a great nation, and through you, your family, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's whole purpose for the nation of Israel was to ultimately bless all the nations. And here, at the height of their religious power, so to speak, right? This was the, the best time. You know, the, the second temple complex, right around 80, 30, when Jesus was this, was, this was sort of the height of the religious influence of the Jews. At the height of their religious power, so to speak, they were blocking out the Gentiles from coming to see the true God. In fact, there was nationalism going on to an extreme level. There was exclusive. There was this idea that we're the people of God. All you others need to stay out. That's the mindset of the Jews, by and large, at this point in time. This was a big problem. They had, I'll say it this way, either overlooked or intentionally ignored their call as a light to the rest of the world. The second reason this is such a big problem is in reference to this robber's den. And this is where we generally think, okay, so they were robbing people. They weren't being fair. Here's, there's two problems with that. Number one, if you think about a robber's den, that's not where the robbing takes place. The robber's den is where the robbers go to hide because it's where they think they're safe. The robber's den is where they hide out. It's that place of supposed safety for the robbers. Secondly, if you look at the reference that Jesus is quoting, it's from Jeremiah 7.11. You don't need to turn there. But here's what he says. It's, it's worth reading. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? You see how this is connecting? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying what Jeremiah talked about, that, that you would go and live however you want, that you would just blatantly thumb your nose at God's law and his requirements for justice and other things. And then you'd come to the temple, you'd come to the house and make sacrifices and say, we can do whatever we want to because God will just forgive us through these sacrifices. This is wrong. This is the den of robbers. They're treating the temple as a hiding place. Now, 
Who were they robbing? There's a lot more going on here than just the financial extortion of the money changing and the doves. Who were they robbing? Through their religious hypocrisy, who were they robbing? Number one, first and foremost, they were robbing God, right? Because they were a nation chosen by him for a purpose. Number two, secondly, they were robbing the Gentiles of, of being able to encounter the true God and being able to have access to the true God through knowledge of Yahweh. And number three, they were robbing themselves. They were missing out on blessing and freedom and joy from walking right with God. And Jesus is calling all this out. Now, this is where I want to start some application. I know we're not done with our text. We have a way to go. But I want to dig in a little bit here and I want to make this real for us. What Jesus was declaring to them would be very much like me coming to you today, you know, as, as one of the teachers, one of your pastors, and, and saying something like this. Men and women, all during the week, you've been by and large living however you want. You've been forsaking God's will. You've been ignoring God's prompting on you to obey in certain areas or to reach out in other areas. You are called to love your family, your neighbors, and yet you're being selfish with your time. You're being selfish with your resources. Some of you have deep addictions that you have no signs of repentance around. Others of us refuse to forgive. All of us are selfish in many ways. And then we think we can come here to church and we're okay just because we're in a religious space. Now, I'm meddling, right? Because this text is meddling in the best of ways. And, and here's where I want to go with this. I want you to think about how this idea directly relates to us. There's no more temple anymore, right? You go to Jerusalem. There's no more temple. We'll talk about that in a minute. Where do we find the temple of God today? Like, there's actually a real question. Where, where, where does the Bible say that the temple of the Holy Spirit, temple of God is? It's in us. Believers in Jesus Christ, it's in us. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Why is he using this imagery? Listen, guys, some of us come to church on Sunday morning and it's all, you know, praise Jesus, you know, how you doing? I'm, I'm blessed, you know, how are you? And we sing holy, 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 and Jesus, we love you, and all these things. Zoom out on our real lives, right? Often there's no submission to God's authority, no real concern for repentance, uh, repenting from our independence from God, of our selfishness, our anger, the way we treat other people, our pride, our lust, our, our idolatry. Who are we robbing? First and foremost, we're robbing God. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. We belong to him. Secondly, we're robbing other people who desperately need the love of God for them, which he would want to mediate through us, not dissimilarly from how he desired to mediate his love through Israel to the nations, Thirdly, and this is maybe the one that will be a, a, a hit home with many of us, we're robbing ourselves. You are robbing yourself of fullness of joy, of spiritual vitality, of the incredible experience of living out a calling as a servant of the God who made you. Yeah. 
guys, I wouldn't push into this if I didn't care about you. If I didn't care about our church and the spiritual vitality of all of us in this room, not the least of which is the one talking to you right now. God does not give us his commands and his word just to, you know, like, like to oppress us or, or, or sort of say, I want to take the fun out of your life. And these commands are fullness of joy. And these commands is life the way it was meant to be lived. Easy, not always. Full of joy, absolutely. And some of us are just nibbling on crumbs when there's a feast to be had. We're robbing God. We're robbing others. We're robbing ourselves. And so I go back to the question I asked at the beginning of the morning. Why are you here? Do you want to have life? You want to have a vibrant and growing spirituality that transforms you over time to experience more and more joy no matter what life throws your way. That's what's on the table. We may look alive on the outside, but when there's no fruit, something's wrong on the inside. Now let me get back to our text and then we'll come back to the application, all right? And, and there's always good news in the gospel. Okay, for all of us that feel an unsettledness this morning, and I would say good. I would say good for you and good for me as well. I'm feeling that. There is good news yet to come, but we have to say this. Jesus wasn't just cleansing the temple. You know, that's what we think about. He's just cleansing the temple. That's what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's doing that, but he's doing something deeper than that. Here's what he's doing. He's judging the temple. Now, what does that mean to judge the temples? He's judging a building? No, just like he wasn't actually judging a tree either, right? There's something deeper. Who is he judging? He's judging the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. He's judging the lack of spiritual fruit, the lack of vitality, the lack of obedience of these people that he'd called to himself. Most importantly, what he's doing is he's shutting down the sacrificial system and he's saying there's going to be a new way. Now, what do you mean he's shutting down the sacrificial system? Listen, y'all, without the exchange of money, without the purchase of doves, there's no sacrifice going on. So for a brief moment, albeit temporarily right now, but very symbolically, Jesus is putting an end to the sacrificial system. Who's putting an end? Jesus is. Why does he have the authority to do it? Because he's the replacement for the sacrificial system. And that's why he'd come to Jerusalem, to stop the system of sacrifices and replace it with himself the true and better Passover lamb who will put an end to the sacrificial system. His actions shut it down. Like There's so much more going on here that I'm going to stop the cheaters. This is judgment on the nation of Israel and their lack of faith, their lack of obedience to the command of God. He was going to be the final sacrifice. Remember a couple weeks ago, Mark 10, 45, he said, listen, here's why I've come. Not to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He's already starting to fill, uh, fill that purpose out on, on day one in Jerusalem. Now, the sacrificial system, of course, was never designed to be the final solution for sin. Why was it there? Why did God institute it? Remember, it was God who instituted the sacrificial system. It was always there to point forward to the true sacrificial lamb, the permanent solution to sin. Now he had arrived. Now let's go back to the fig tree. We've got to get to the bottom piece of bread before we start pulling all these, these loose ends together. Let's talk about fruitful faith. 
And this is the last passage. I'm not going to have time to exposit all of it, to be honest with you, but I'll do what I can in the time remaining. Let me jump into verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. So they'd go back to Bethany, right? Which was Mary, Martha, and uh, Lazarus were living in Bethany. And as they were passing by in the morning, they're going back to Jerusalem now in the morning, right? They would come and go every day. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Pause there. Here's the symbolism. Fig tree represents the temple, which is the whole religious system of the Jews. Now it's withered, right? From the roots up, it's dead. What do you do with a tree once it's dead? What do you do? What do you do with a tree once it's dead? Thank you. You cut it down. You cut it down. Uh, don't turn there. You, you skip ahead a little more than one chapter from now, Mark 13, 2. Jesus is going to predict the entire temple structure. That magnificent thing we showed a picture of is going to be cut down. It's going to be torn down. He'll say no stone will be left upon another. And this happened. It was fulfilled less than 40 years after Jesus spoke the words. AD 70, Rome says, we've had it with you Jews and your nationalistic rebellion. You're done. You're done. They come in. They raise that incredible, magnificent structure. They literally blow it up. Like they set fire on it. Okay. And, and they push all that. Explode all the fascinating process how they actually did it. And literally this prophecy is fulfilled. So when you come today and you look at that temple structure, you're not looking at original stone. You kind of have to go underground for the most part to see original stone. By the way, you've seen pictures of the Western Wall, what we, what we sometimes call the Wailing Wall. Why is that so significant? That's one of the, the last remaining original areas of the Temple Mount, and it's the closest that today's Jews can get to where the temple would have, would have been. They can't even access that area anymore. It's, it's a Muslim area. The, the Dome of the Rock, the shrine is there. They can't get there, so they go as close as they can. They put their hands on that wall. There's even a sign when you go in and see that wall that says this is the eternal presence of God at this wall. I'm sorry, with all due respect, it's not where God's eternal presence is, at a wall. The tree is withered. It's been replaced with something else. This is just so massive. And I want you to hear the big picture here. The temple represented, for its season, the time that God had it there, it represented the way to get to God through sacrifice, through religious ritual. It was no longer bearing fruit. It didn't mean anymore to the people what God had intended it to mean. They had kind of ignored their calling of what they were meant to do. It was lifeless. It was withered. Now, what, here's the problem. If the temple goes away, if the tree withers, what does that mean for people who want to get to God? How do you get to God? How will anyone relate to God if the religious system is dead from the roots up? Is everyone under judgment? Yes, which is exactly why Jesus came. What's the answer for us? Well, Jesus' response to Peter in verse 22 carries the whole idea of the passage. And this is where I want to land for the sake of time. Verse 22, And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Four words. Four syllables. They carry so much freight. 
Have faith in God. I don't want you to gloss over that. Jesus is giving them and us the key to a vital spirituality, the key to a, to a relationship with God that's so much more than a religious pattern of, you know, every Sunday I come to church and sing songs and hear a sermon and go home. Or for them it was, you know, every, every Passover I come and I, and I offer my lamb and I'm cleansed and I'm good. You see? It's so much more than that. Have faith in God. And then he goes on in 23 to 25, and we won't have time to really expound it, unfortunately, but all the mountains being like tossed in the sea, what Jesus is essentially saying is he's, he's using this crazy, you know, sort of exaggerated image to contrast with the withered fig tree. Withered fig tree represents religious ritual. Faith can put a mountain into the sea. How vibrant is that? How alive is that? How fruit-bearing and effective and powerful is that? There could not be a greater contrast, you see. Have faith in God. Here's the big idea of the passage. Real vitality, real power, is not in any religious activity. No matter how impressive, how often you come to church, how much money you give, how often you read your Bible, you know, these, if you're just going through those kind of rote things, checking the box, there's not vitality in that. The power and vitality is in God himself. It is activated through us by faith. I heard this analogy once of, um, you know, faith is a little bit like the clutch in the car. You know, like if you, you have a car with a very powerful engine, you know, you're showing off your sports car. No one's going to say, oh my goodness, that is an amazing clutch. <laughs> no, they're going to say, look at that engine, right? That engine's powerful. But without the clutch, you see, that, that engine can't, can't get the gears to make the car move. You see, faith is just the clutch. It's nothing to brag about. That's why it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't have to have a powerful clutch. You just need a clutch. The power is in the engine. The power is in... God himself, and it's so powerful, he's saying, look, mountains can be thrown into the sea if you pray for that aligned with my will. That's what's happening through this. Now, skip to the ending here because I'm just about out of time. I want to talk about fruitful faith. Like, if there's no fruit in religious activity, just going through the motions, which is where some of us do, if we're honest, and, and, and I know we're not like, you know, just coming in intentionally saying, man, I, I, I just want to just go through the motions, you know. But this happens over time. And we need a little bit of a wake-up call. Thankfully, we have texts like this. And by the way, this is why we teach expositionally. So we can't gloss over and miss over difficult texts. Now, let's talk about fruitful faith. And I want to get just as practical as I possibly can get. I know we've covered a lot. It's kind of been a heavy message. Background detail, you know, different things. Here's what I want you to ask yourself, just as kind of the so what how might you apply those four words to a specific area of your life right now? Have faith in God. In other words, I want you to think about what is one area of your life, like, I mean, literally specific, like, like something that's on your front burner right now. What is one area of your life that, that you would say, okay, I could apply those four words, have faith in God to that area. We all have something, all right? So let me just give you some examples. You know, I'm going through a situation right now where I, I'm like, you know, I, th I think if I, if I really think on it, I, I'm trying to control something because it's really important to me. And I'm like, man, I just want to kind of shape this conversation. I just want, I want to control this a little bit. Like, Rob, what would it look like? This is what God's been asking me. If you just say, have faith in God that he's in control. 
Like some, some of you, you, you got stuff out of your life that's just in your life that's a little bit out of control. And it's like you know, some, some shadow areas going on here. And it's like, you, you just know it's, it's not really okay. It's not right. It's just a little bit out of control. What would it look like if you say, all right, have faith in God in that thing. Maybe not easy, but it starts to point you in the right direction. Maybe what that is is like having faith in God is it's like pulling someone you care about and say, listen, I, I got to talk about this. And it's hard for me to do, but I'm having faith in God that I can talk to you about this and, and, and I'm not going to be condemned. I'm going to be helped. Maybe some of you, you've got a hard relationship going on in your life. What would it look like for you to say, I, I want to have faith in God. Some of you are facing a terrible illness or someone you care about love is facing a terrible illness. What would it look like? Have faith in God. And so I literally want you to bow your heads and, and I'm going to pray for you. And, and, and my, my prayer, listen, I, don't just go through the motions on this. You can if you want, but, but you're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself. And I want to pray for you as your pastor. And Father, I pray right now, even as we're all praying together, that you would bring to everyone's mind just one area of their life that they would say, all right, what would it look like for me not to go through a religious ritual, but to have faith in God in that thing, that relationship, that temptation, that hard thing, that situation that's out of control, that thing that I'm worried about, I'm anxious about. What would it look like? I want to have faith in God. I, I want to have the kind of faith that could actually move a mountain. But I don't know how. Some people are saying in the room right now, Lord, and, and I know you're hearing those prayers. And you, you know their hearts. You know my heart. And so would you show us? And would you replace our fear and our anxiety and our confusion with, with this, this seed of faith that would then grow to be fruit-bearing that the, the, the fig trees of going through the motions of Sunday morning religious ritual would be withered and cut down. And what would replace them would be the seed of faith. And that it would grow and it would bear fruit. And it would start even in one little area of our lives this morning. Have faith in God. And I pray that you would keep us thinking about that, reflecting on it as we sing this next song about your faithfulness. Because it is not the power of our faith it is your faithfulness that gives us hope. And I pray we would believe and that we would put our trust in that. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet as we sing this song?